The National Science Foundation, or NSF, is one of the main ways that the U.S. government funds basic research. They provide research infrastructure and grants aimed at supporting the fundamentals of biology, physics, chemistry, and other sciences. This charge differs a little bit from that of other institutions, such as the EPA and the USDA, which support science that's often aimed at more specific social or economic problems. Many NSF research projects have led to major advances. In the 1960s, researchers funded by the NSF found a species of bacteria, Thermus aquaticus, in hot springs at Yellowstone National Park. This microbe had an enzyme that now is invaluable to science, allowing us to study DNA in a much more efficient way than before. This molecule, without question, led to a molecular revolution in biology. More recently, other NSF-funded research led to Google's search algorithm, as well as Doppler radar, the same technology you see the TV meteorologists using to predict the weather, and MRI technology, those machines that doctors use to peer inside your body. And these discoveries are just a few of NSF's greatest hits, but the agency funds more than 10,000 projects each year. Overall, the NSF provides about a quarter of all federal funding for basic research. Last week, on the verge of another government shutdown, Congress passed a bill that funds the NSF through 2019. That budget is just over $8 billion, which is the biggest ever for NSF, and NSF leaders are hoping that it'll help scientists tackle some important topics. On this episode, we're talking with two of these NSF leaders. Joanne Turno was recently promoted to head the Biological Sciences Directorate, and Arthur, or Skip Lupia, became the head of the Social, Behavioral, and Economic Science Directorate back in 2018. We interviewed them on February 15th in front of a live audience at the annual meeting for the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Washington, D.C. We talked to them about what kinds of science the agency hopes to fund going forward and what science might look like over the next 10 years. We also asked about one of their big initiatives, a program called the Rules of Life which is one of NSF's 10 big ideas. You can learn more about these big ideas on their website, www.nsf.gov, and you'll hear more from Joanne and Skip later about the Rules of Life program. Basically, though, Rules of Life aims to reveal some of the unifying principles of biology. For example, one big problem over the last 10 years has been to elucidate how genotypes become phenotypes, the complex living and behaving organisms that we see. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. Um, we're at the AAAS meeting in Washington, D.C. That's the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And we have a, a couple of guests from the National Science Foundation. We have Joanne Torno, who's the uh, head of the Biological Directorate. And we have Arthur Lupia, who's the head of uh, Social, Behavioral, and Economic Sciences. Uh, Arthur also goes by Skip, so you may hear Skip in there. And uh, we've, we've come together to talk about some of the uh, big ideas that, that na the National Science Foundation is thinking about and the kinds of science that they want to fund going forward and what we can expect to see out of, out of the NSF over the next 10 years or so. Um, so I just wanted to start by asking both of you about just generally the kinds of research that NSF funds, you know, especially in relation to other, other agencies that are funding science in the U.S. So I'll start and turn it over to my colleague. Uh, we generally, we actually fund the whole spectrum of science, engineering, and education. Uh, and we fund research, 
to uh, in all those areas. We also fund the infrastructure that is needed to enable and support those research activities across that spectrum. Uh, and we also have a, a lot of investments in the development of the STEM workforce through education and training and fellowships for students at a variety of different levels of their education pathway. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'd like to hear a little bit about some of the big initiatives that, that you guys are, are advocating for now and sort of new things that are on the table. Um, I'll just sort of cue you a little bit. One, one thing that we paid attention to a lot is the National Ecological Observatory Network, or NEON. And um, just maybe tell us about, about that and how you formulate these sort of big initiatives to, to move science forward. Excellent. So, yes, yeah, so NEON, as we like to call it, the, is a major infrastructure uh, research facility that uh, primarily supports the uh, advances in ecological science, uh, really trying to enable kinds of questions at the continental scale that have not yet been possible with the um, other kinds of investments that we have been making. Mm -hmm. uh, NEON has been uh, a decade or more in the making from the uh, development of it and uh, the uh, engagement with the community very early on on what are the, the kinds of questions, what are the needs for the infrastructure that would support advances in the ecological sciences that we currently didn't have or that we didn't have 10 years ago. Uh, and through a whole process of um, of design, various stages of design, and then construction. Mm -hmm. uh, NEON is, we have one tower left to complete in Hawaii, uh, and we will be 100% built for NEON, and have moved into operations this past year, so that it is now producing data and data products for the community. Yeah, that's great. So, and yeah. how many total observatories are there? There's like 80 plus? 81, 81. yes. Yeah, and it's a, it's a mix of terrestrial and aquatic uh, uh, um, observe well the the sensors the um, blanking on the word here that I want to use but the the uh, in, the infrastructure that is uh, collecting the data we have both data we have uh, we have sensors that collect digital data for a variety of different metrics we also um, have people that collect samples to get the uh, biological data that in that in uh, uh, partnership with the sensor data for the environmental uh, components give us a real picture of what is happening at all of these sites. And one of the features of NEON is that uh, we are collecting the same kind of data at all of these sites, which are located in very different uh, uh, areas of the United States, so that we can actually ask questions across the continent for the differences in uh, the data that we are seeing at the different sites for particular metrics. Mm -hmm. So can you say something? It's just a staggering scale of study. Staggering. It's absolutely amazing. What are the kinds of questions that are exciting NSF or exciting the people that are working at the stations? The sort of a, a few of the foci right now that they're going to use these data. So we're actually just starting to get those kinds of proposals in. So now that we have, we have actually at NSF, and this is sort of specific to NEON in biology, but this is also true that what we do for any large facility that we are building is that there is also um, investments in the research 
scientists and the research that can be done using the data that is produced by those facilities. And so in bio, we did have for the last 10 years a program that for supporting macro systems biology that would uh, enable the community to grow and begin to think in the larger scale of the kinds of questions. Um, we are now this year um, expanding that so that it is neon science in that uh, program. So I'm going to answer your question a little bit differently to say what I think uh, a big uh, opportunity is for that goes be a little bit beyond individual research projects and that is in the area of eco forecasting that neon may very well enable so you know if you think about the all the advances that we've had in our ability to forecast weather we can hope that neon and other kinds of investments like that could get us to a point where we could actually forecast ecological change in a faster time frame than we currently can do. Right now, we're thinking about ecological change over decades, centuries, right? We could really shorten that and have a more predictive ecology, which is um, a, would be a huge transformation of the field. Mm -hmm. That's exciting. Yeah. A few, well, quite a while ago, we had a guest, Barbara Hahn, on. She's a disease ecologist at the Cary Institute in New York. And we asked her for a crazy idea at the end, and she talked about a disease forecasting system. So go. I guess she'll I, be fairly excited yes, <laughs> about this as an opportunity. Yeah. So what are, what are some sort of big initiatives, anything comparable to NEON in SBE? Well, I mean, one thing that's going on across the foundation are the 10 big ideas. You know, we're, we're at this great moment in science where we have so many methods and so many perspectives and so many uh, different ways of looking at problems, uh, but a lot of times people work separately. So one of the great um, attributes of the NSF's 10 big ideas is you take these sort of fundamental scientific and societal challenges and you say to the field, can you find dynamic ways to work together? So ranging in fields from quantum to AI to the rules of life, which uh, bio and SBE work together on, future of work, um, NSF includes. Uh, these are all challenges where the direct, all the parts of NSF work together to try and find the most dynamic teams to really bring forth innovation. Uh, it's a real challenge, but the time is right. Um, and so, you know, I think if you look at NSF, the top line at NSF, the top line big idea are the big ideas. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, in terms of planning times out into the future, um, you know, of course you guys are looking a few years into the future and thinking very hard about budgets, but in terms of strategy about supporting science in five or ten or, or fifty years, how, how far out do you look and, and plan in a concrete way? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I'm relatively new to NSF, but I can tell you, you think about all the timelines. So from a practical point of view, our budgets are yearly, yeah. right? So there's a certain set of commitments that you can only make within the, the framework of a year. But when you think about something like NEON or our investments in supercomputers or in uh, ships that explore the ocean or, or you, know, you need longer term planning there, we have uh, great conversations and relationships with other agencies, with other parts of the government, with parts of the private sector. And we do have conversations that, depending on the field, can be decadal or multi-decade. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, if you're thinking about something like NEON, you know, that is not something you can do within a fiscal year. So we do have these great conversations. Mm -hmm. um, but the ability to commit, that's where, that's where it gets harder. So the longer sure. the time frame, the more we need to really work with other agencies and other parts of government to make sure that we can make the commitments that the scientific community need to, to get the, the transformation and the innovation that these huge projects require. Yeah, I get it, yeah. 
Makes sense. And even as we're thinking about our research priorities, we also like that we see we can see close short-term and longer-term horizons in the opportunities, uh, and even though we have a yearly budget, we do think about these things in an arc uh, that lasts five to ten years. Yeah. With the flexibility of a sort of a dynamic interaction. We fund things in the first year, we see what comes in, we see some results that come out, and then we can Recalibrate. You know, move the direction of these particular areas because the science moves pretty quickly now. And so we want to have the opportunity, even in the larger big picture of where we're trying to go on the horizon, to have the flexibility to move and respond as the science changes. Yeah. We've sort of represented uh, NSF maybe in a uh, somewhat unrepresentative way. But it's not so much that NSF dictates to the researchers what types of research work through NEON or big ideas. I mean, a lot of what you fund comes from individual scientists making Ab applications. Absolutely. Yeah. The majority of what we fund is investigator-initiated research projects that come into our core programs, which are very broad-based and are looking for the best ideas and the best opportunities from the scientific community. Yeah. And even as we develop these other larger initiatives, the big ideas, the facilities, things like that, they're built on um, extensive interactions with the community. We have advisory committees for all of our directorates that are, are uh, populated by people from the community who bring different perspectives of where the opportunities are. You all know that we fund workshops, we engage with the National Academies of Science for doing sort of forward thinking about where the opportunities are. There's a lot, there's a very extensive engagement with the community to be thinking about where are the opportunities where NSF could make a difference. Yeah. It is all about the community though. I mean, we have great leadership, France Cordova, Director Joanne, I mean, sort of setting the vision. But at the end of the day, if we put out these calls, it all depends on the community. Yeah. That, that, that's where it all starts, that's where it all ends. Anything that you know NSF can claim credit for at the end of the day depends on scholars, researchers, groups, sort of just trying to think, how do I innovate? How do I kind of you know break the thing I'm not sure works and recreate something new that can transform science and help society? It yeah. begins and ends yeah. with the community. Nice. Well, l let me ask a, a follow-up question related to that, and, and that's about how NSF balances funding big initiatives and big groups versus individual investigators. And you know, you guys have already spoken to that to some extent, but um, I wanted to ask whether you saw this paper that came out a couple of days ago by uh, Ling-Fei Wu and, and collaborators. It was about um, the different kinds of progress that scientific groups of different size make. And what they found is that really big groups do science in a fundamentally different way than, than, than do small groups. And they, they both have very positive things that they bring to the table, but in general, small groups and individual investigators are more likely to, to do disruptive science. And is that the kind of thing that would sort of recalibrate the way NSF thinks about, you know, funding funding science? I, I think, well, that's an SBE-funded study, so thank you for asking. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think... At NSF, that type of work is really useful. It really kind of helps us understand the ecosystem. At the same time, I think there is a bait. The, the NSF's business model is, is built on this recursive relationship between small, dynamic innovators, the pioneers, the rebels, right? And we fund so much of that. At some point, however, it's hard for, so the individual investigators can disrupt, and that's awesome. And But there's some ideas that you want to bring them to scale. And how you bring stuff to scale is really hard if you're if you're a small group. And so I think NSF is always rethinking the balance, but I think it's been very smart to 
both fund the individual investigators and then do the big projects like Neon, where you can take the ideas of previous rebels and 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 things like that, right. and then uh, create scale something them into something that's useful, where everybody can be part of the next generation of yeah. research. Yeah, nice. So maybe we'll switch gears, uh, given a, a relatively small window of time we have, and focus in on this rules of life initiative. So you want to tell us a little bit about what it represents? So understanding the rules of life is really, I think, all about trying to answer the question is whether, uh, is nature predictable? Can we understand enough about the underlying principles that um, at the at the minimal scale within a cell that govern how uh, information is uh, expressed and how what impact it has, how it, it, it manifests in, a, in the characteristics of the cell, what we call the phenotype. Uh, at an interaction level, how uh, a variety of different uh, uh, functions come together to create a entirely new function, an emergent, we call an emergent property. So there, is, you know, in birds, there is no gene that says fly. But there are a number of genes that produce different kinds of properties in the bird that then allow it to fly. And how that all comes together, that is very cool. Kind of complicated. That, right? And very complicated. <laughs> but it is, there are, there really are principles underneath it that, real, that guide it. And if we can understand them, then we can predict what impact changes would have and then potentially make that usable. Then there, at the next highest level, there's a great deal of complexity in the interactions between environment, between individuals, when you think about behaviors and how those behaviors interact and create um, societies and ecosystems, depending on the organisms you're talking about. All of those things, it gets more and more complicated as you get to these different levels because there's many, many more factors coming in and interactions, making it much more difficult to predict. But we do think that that's, uh, that is possible if we really can sort of start to tease out what are some of the underlying principles and rules that as you move up in scales, they start to, uh, to manifest in these different properties. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, and you know, if you think about why this is so important, uh, there are things in, in culture that we know about, right? Precision-based medicine, the possibility of automating all manner of things, the idea of transforming how we convey critical services to vulnerable populations around the world. What is the basis for, from which you build those? You have to understand, uh, you know, what is predictable and what isn't. Because we can have all the high-end sort of technology in the world, but if our fundamental assumption is wrong about what aspects are predictable and what aren't, we're building on a false foundation. The reason that this, this program, I think, is so important is it's a, it's a call to so many researchers to try and help us figure out what do we know, what is knowable, what is the firm foundation from which we can build transformative technologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and you guys are really emphasizing sort of cross-disciplinary integrative teams of people coming from different areas of science, right? right. So uh -huh. I, I think that, that's what it's going to take to do those sorts of projects, right? Yeah. So I absolutely think that we that this is going to require cross-disciplinary teams uh, or, or multidisciplinary um, perspectives, which doesn't necessarily mean the large teams, as mm -hmm. you just talked mm -hmm. about, but it does mean that we need to have a portfolio that is looking at this problem in a lot of different ways. I do think that there's a, a, 
the opportunity there I also I think there is really a disruptive opportunity when disciplines come together and they all are looking at the same problem but from different ways and they can inform each other and new understandings do emerge when you bring together a lot of different disciplines around a common question uh, and but I do think that is definitely what it's going to take so you know from my own perspective as a molecular biologist by training uh, I the chemistry principles and chemistry principles of physics are absolutely uh, key and central to the initial interactions that you see in a cell and what governs the behaviors of molecules in a cell and the expression of the DNA. Uh, interestingly, we've, we have, we funded something some years ago, a few years ago, where findings came out last year that underlying principles of statistical physics and magnetism can actually explain how trees synchronize in dropping their leaves or dropping acorns. And like, who would have ever put that together? And, but that is the kind of thing where we bring biologists and physicists and chemists and computational biologists together, there's a whole new world of opportunity that opens up. Yeah. So you recently put out um, the Dear Colleague letter on these uh, integration institutes. Th that sounds incredibly exciting. How, uh, how how are you thinking about those things now? I know the, the solicitation was for input from the community. Yes. So maybe you're waiting a little bit to hear from. Right. The, yeah. Yeah. So, so what have you heard? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you brought that up. The deadline is March 1st, so we are looking for those ideas to come in from the community. We um, I we expect that there's going to be a peak on. Uh, February 28th. <laughs> As always. As always. So this came out from the bio directorate and th actually the integration institutes are getting to a different kind of integration. It is really thinking uh, about integrating across the sub-disciplines of biology. So a more horizontal integration, if you will, than the vertical integration that we have been emphasizing for quite some time at NSF across the major disciplines. There, We have gotten pretty good at seeing these cross-disciplinary teams where you bring in biologists, physicists, chemists, etc. But what we're really interested in now is, is uh, looking to see if there's a way that we can help to catalyze some integration across biology. We have a lot of sub-disciplines in biology, which you know. And we've actually developed different vocabularies and different kinds of oh, yes. experimental approaches, and, right? And so that is actually causing a fractionation of biology, where there are major huge biological questions, fundamental biological questions that would benefit from bringing together sub-disciplines of biology. Mm -hmm. So that Absolutely. is a little bit of the goal of the Integration Institutes. We kind of want to challenge the biologists to say, what are those big questions that really transcend scale in biology? that we want to focus yeah. on. And, and, and just so I get it, you envision like physical centers that are built that bring together working PIs for some period of time to, to work on predefined questions of, of a sort? So the actual mechanism of what these are going to look like is uh, to be determined. Ah. And it will be driven a little bit by the kinds of ideas that we get from the community. When we see sort of what are the opportunities, then we'll talk a little bit about what do we think would be the best way to catalyze those kind of yeah. advances. That's a great community-driven way to do that. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so uh, we also wanted to sort of switch switch gears again and talk a little bit about um, 
the, the NSF's role in in society today and and sort of confronting uh, what feels to us like a sort of rising tide of science skepticism and just sort of interested in in NSF's response to that NSF's role in in you know in uh, disseminating scientific information and promoting understanding among the general public. Yeah. So. Well, you know, one thing when we think about science and skepticism, it's important not to forget that skepticism is a really important part of Absolutely. science. Absolutely, yeah. Right? We're yeah. all very skeptical, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. right? So that, that's like one of our strengths. And, you know, if society is skeptical, you know, we should embrace that as well. Um, but part of the issue is how we convey, you know, what science is and the amazing things that it has and can do to transform people's lives. So a lot of times scholars, we, uh, we like the, the rigor, we like the jargon, and uh, trying to describe what we do, the implications to a broader audience, is secondary or sometimes even frowned upon. I think that as we enter 2019, and there's a crisis of credibility in all, all aspects of culture, it's really important for science to, to tell its story well, to stay true to what it does, to stay true to what it, it knows, but to tell it in you know examples or metaphors or analogies or vignettes that draw people in, that help us understand that you know th this is really vital to the continuation, the prosperity, the security of our, our society. The National Science Foundation, I think, is, is so important in this because of not only the range of people it supports, but the message it sends, because it really does stay true to the mission of basic science and through education and training and the great stories it can tell about the scholars it supported, particularly early. So I'm from the social and behavioral sciences. Um, you know, I can tell you that I think it's 46 of the last 50 Nobel Prize winners in economics were supported by NSF and most early in their careers, mm -hmm. right? And these are, are people who have gone and transformed the world, mm -hmm. right? So, so those are the, I, I think, the model of NSF and the way that it tells these stories is, you know, people can decide for themselves, skepticism is healthy, but, um, you know, I think it's important to tell the story of the amazing value of science, even in a world that seems complicated. Yeah, absolutely. Then NSF also um, invests in the community to do the same. Through our informal science education programs, for example, NSF puts a lot of investment in uh, things, uh, programs on um, in NOVA and in uh, museums and other kinds of informal science ed, which reaches out to the public just to inform about science and what we know and uh, the opportunities and the excitement and just to really tell that story. So it is what NSF does yeah. itself in telling the stories and how we enable the community as well. Yeah. So one thing that um, I, I wonder what, what you think about this and specifically if NSF has mechanisms, it's tough for a lot of scientists to do these sorts of things. I'm not sure Art yes. and I are, or at least me, very good at uh, doing, doing these podcasts. And it's because it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in the language that we know and quickly you know, fall into that jargon. Are, is NSF taking any steps now to, to help researchers break out of that? Well, the first thing I want to say is, is just in terms of NSF's mission, what you do is so important because you do stay true to the corpus. You do understand the science, and you find these creative and engaging ways to convey it. And we need more people like you because uh, that, that's just a, that's a critical part of it. At NSF, I think, you know, we work with a lot of different organizations, right? I mean, uh, we have an Office of Legislative and Public Affairs, and they are they are 
you know, this was not a priority, let's say, 20 years ago, but now they are getting better uh, at the stories. They also work with organizations like this one. We're at AAAS right now, and there's a lot of explicit science communication training here. We do fund some research on uh, how to convey science effectively, how to stay true to what it is in ways that people can understand. So, so we do that, but, uh, you know, I think we're... We're not a PR agency, like we fund basic science. So we tell stories about what we do, and then we're, we're so appreciative of the support of folks like AAAS and, and people like you who, who find the stories that we have and then find ways to convey them very effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let, let me ask another line of questioning about uh, sort of pu public skepticism of science. So um, you're, you're part of the executive branch, and um, you know, we, we've seen some skepticism of science and the scientific method from members of the executive branch. So how, how does NSF navigate that potential tension between, you know, what what the executive branch would like to see and the responsibility to the public to provide the best the best science? So well it's you know it, it's important to take a broad view. In so many ways, uh, the executive branch is supportive of science. Just this week, mm -hmm. there's a huge commitment to AI, to AI, machine learning. There's been huge commitments to quantum. And, and there's great support of our agency and other science agencies. There are, what's interesting is there are uh, uh, some folks at Yale have done a study of, of public views of science. And so we tell the story that the, the public is skeptical of science. But I think there were 60 issues on which they asked questions. And there were only three that there was correct, which oh. there was controversial. And, and on the and so in science, we think of the crisis because we only focus on the three, and one obviously is climate change. Mm -hmm. but there are so many other forms of science that the public has some awareness of and are grateful that people are doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think at NSF, you know, our obligation is to listen. Our obligation is to be responsive. We don't do any advocacy at all. That, that's, that's really clear. We try and provide the best possible information so that people in different parts of society can take the goals and and. and and the fears and the aspirations of the moment, we offer the best available data and evidence and analysis, and we put it out there for people to use it, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that is how we serve the country. I think, um, you know, we've gotten a lot of feedback from other parts of government that they, you know, that they appreciate us and the other science agencies doing that. Yeah. And I think that's how, that's how you maintain the credibility and the viability and value of science, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, in a complicated era. And, you know, those, those particular issues that become politicized, that, that's an interesting dynamic. And is SBE, is your directorate, you know, fu funding research of any kind on what it is about some scientific issues that become so controversial in the public eye, whereas other things, yeah. you know, are just fine with people? Well, you know, our, again, our, our mission is really to fund basic research in the social sciences that... that uh, are of great value to the country as a whole. So we stay away from things that, sure. that look partisan. I can say one of the types of findings that NSF and other agencies have funded is, is you might have a stereotype of who is it that's skeptical of science. And it turns out, or, or of a particular scientific finding like in climate change, and what you often find is it's very educated people who are the most mm -hmm. different. So on climate change, uh, it is people who know quite a lot about science and climate change who in public are the most uh, at odds. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and part of it is because they understand the science, but when you think about the policy aspect, there are some moral and ethical considerations. Like, we may agree that climate science is in a particular state. We may agree on certain findings, but then there's a the question of what should society do? There are deep moral and ethical questions there that are really important, and many of them are outside the domain of science, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so what we try to do is provide the support, the best available evidence, rigorous, replicable, you know, true, regardless of what
what your background is. You know, provide all the evidence and all, all the, the background information so that you can check for yourself whether it's true. And then what people do with it, I mean, that's, that's part of culture. Mm -hmm. But our responsibility is to the credibility and, and the rigor and reliability. Yeah, great. So maybe let's end on a really forward-looking, what, what kind of crazy thing is coming down the road five or ten years away that is really going to shake things up from SBE and from bio? Well, I mean, uh, ending with an easy one. <laughs> oh, well, you know, I, I, one thing that excites me because I'm, I'm a geek is the closing of the brain behavior gap. I mean, the ability, uh, you know, in, in, in the neurosciences, the ability now to isolate, uh, you know, not just small parts of the brain's neurons, but now try to connect them to higher level phenomena. I mean, that is unbelievable. And from the behavior side, sort of more and more ability to record and articulate human behaviors and its context. I don't know that that gap will ever be closed, but the narrowing of it and the possibilities for human well-being and health, that is so exciting to me. And I and and that actually is is well aligned with the things that we've been talking about uh, in this podcast around the rules of life and how do we actually understand those gaps. And I do think that the rules of life and our understanding of the underlying principles are going. There's going to be some significant breakthroughs in our understanding of how to predict, uh, so that we can make it make a. It'll be a huge difference in. Uh, in society, agriculture, health, and so on. And so uh, between NEON and rules of life, I think we really have are laying the groundwork for some major breakthroughs in, pre in our understanding and predictability of nature. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic, yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for really having us. Really, really appreciate you coming much. on the podcast. Yeah, Thanks. it's great. Thank you. It should come as no surprise to all of you faithful listeners that we're big fans of the Rules of Life initiative. Researchers working in the area are addressing some of the very questions we've discussed on previous episodes. Think about Sarah Walker trying to define what life is. To Sarah, life is about the organization of information. That might be a rule for identifying life on other planets. And others, like Mihaila Pavlichev and Massimo Piliucci, argue that even for life on Earth, our rules of life might need updating. They and many others claim that the relationships between genes and actual traits are much more complex than we've historically given them credit. We need big rules that fit all situations. The Rules of Life program encourages scientists to tackle these and related big ideas in biology, particularly those that stretch across scales. Here's one example that was recently funded by the program, a project on the response of organisms to climate change. Ecologists think that ectotherms, living at low elevations, will be most at risk from global warming, because they're already living in warm places in the first place. As Jen Sunday told us in episode 15, many organisms just won't tolerate conditions much hotter than they are already. But what if organisms living at various altitudes can tolerate different levels of heat? Can genes make their way down mountains and save low-altitude populations from extinction? Some scientists at Colorado State are trying to answer just this question with funding from the Rules of Life program. Using genomics, physiology, and ecology, they hope to predict which populations will be most and least at risk. Their idea is that different gene forms in different populations will affect how much heat frogs can handle. And how much they can handle via those genetic variants will affect whether or not a population survives. But what's truly unique and exciting about the work is that their ultimate goal is to learn whether suborganismal factors, genes and physiology, will culminate in whole ecosystem-level effects, 
whether these frogs, which are one of the major grazers in streams, will affect the way that resources circulate for the other animals and plants there. This kind of project, which spans many if not most scales in biology, is just what NSF is looking to support. NSF thinks, and most scientists agree, that these level-spanning, integrated projects hold great promise for discovering rules of life. That's it for this episode. Thanks to those of you that stopped by to say hi at the AAAS meeting. We had some great conversations with listeners, and we might have snagged some new listeners, too. We also met some other fellow podcasters, so stay tuned for some crossover events in the near future. Before signing off, we want to plug our Patreon page, www.patreon.com bigbio. We really appreciate the support of patrons so far. Some of the funds you've donated helped us get to Washington, D.C. to interview Skip and Joanne, and we really appreciate that help. If you want to become a supporter and help us to do more live events in interesting places, among other activities, you too can become a patron by making a donation at patreon.com bigbio. If you don't have the cash now, just tell your friends about us on social media or next time you're hanging out and talking about awesome podcasts. Thanks to Matt Blois for writing and production help on the episode. Haley Hansen and Chloe Ramsey manage our social media. And thanks to Steve Lane for managing the website. And last but not least, a big thank you for financial support from the University of South Florida's College of Public Health. Music on this episode is from Poddington Bear.